The Fake Show is brought to you by Threads of Envy, the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, and by Mr. Antenna. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Jim Messina formed his first band, Jim Messina and his Jesters, before he even entered high school and got a job as an apprentice engineer. And when bassist Bruce Palmer was fired from Buffalo Springfield after numerous drug possession busts, Messina was able to parlay his work as their engineer and producer into a gig as bass player on their final album, Last Time Around. Messina would then team up with Springfield guitarist Richie Furet in 1968 before moving on to produce then-unknown Kenny Loggins and the rest is history, as I'm about to discuss with Jim Messina from his home in Nashville. Welcome. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Great, Jim Messina. Thanks so much for, for joining me. I, I have to tell you right off the bat that I'm a big fan of your live album, In the Groove. You're just in fine oh, voice good. here. Good. I, I am, I'm very proud of that, and the Music Connection gave us a 10 out of 10, which they hardly ever do for anybody, so... That was uh, that gave me chills up and down my back when I heard that. Yeah, piece. that's great. Well, and does this feature the band that you tour with normally? Everybody up to that point was in the band. Unfortunately, we we lost Rusty, you know, last year. Right. And then George Hawkins, I, we we lost the year before that. So uh, the band has been, uh, you know, augmented with people who are still people that I've worked with. Mike Michael Brady, who recorded with me on. Uh, my Messina album. I've got a, a new drummer right now who's uh, out of uh, Nashville area where I live. His name is Jack Bruno, and he's a fabulous drummer. He worked with Tina Turner and Joe Cocker, and uh, he, he really can do my music the way I want. Um, and I, I brought in actually uh, a keyboard player now, James Frazier, uh, in, instead of the violinist, because I'm going to start doing a lot more of my solo works, and most of my stuff from Largs and Messina onto my solo works were all had piano involved in it. So um, right now, I you know uh, I, I need that to move forward. And then I'm also working with um, uh, Stevie Nieves, who was with Kenny and I in 2005 reunion, the 2009 reunion. Uh, he's just a fabulous um, uh, sax player and percussionist. So I'm moving the band a little bit more to where I can start moving into my my rock and Latin stuff. No, I'll keep I'll keep a tune or two from the Springfield or Poco, but I want to start doing more of my solo works and uh, um, and some of the songs that uh, are on that in the Groove album, especially. It's really great, of course, that you started out so young as an engineer and producer. How old were you when you kind of got that gig for Buffalo Springfield? I think I was around nineteen. Wow! And I had moved I had moved to Hollywood when I was seventeen because I graduated graduated early out of school. I actually, in, in high school, I was a producer for uh, Ibis Records, and uh, this gentleman named Glenn Edwards, who was uh, a, a DJ for KEZY Radio at the Disneyland Hotel, discovered me for some reason, and I was producing records during my high school year, and then af- afterwards, when I graduated, I realized I was never going to be a studio musician. They were all just too great. You know, there was Glenn Campbell there, James Burton, Joe Osborne, all the, you know, Mark yep. Kessel, I... Yeah. You just don't compete with that stuff. So I figured, well, I'm not going back to San Bernardino. So I asked my engineer, can I apprentice under him? He was kind enough to do that, Mike DeRoe, who later became very famous in the radio business. But he um, he helped me, uh, you know, trained me, uh, and I learned to build studios and wiring and stuff like that. And uh, later on, I built a studio with him for 
somebody who uh, was from um, Shreveport, Louisiana, who happened to be um, very tight with Glenn Campbell, Joe Osborne, James Burton. I got a chance to see Keith, Keith Allison, Jerry Allison of the Crickets. All those great rockabilly players come through the studio before I even went to work for Sunset Sound. So when I started working as an engineer full-time and eventually a couple of years later at um, <clears throat> excuse me, Sunset Sound, that's when I first ran into the Buffalo Springfield. Those guys were really starting to think, talk about going in other directions. In fact, I think it was hard for you, wasn't it, to round everyone up in the studio? I know that Neil Young was pretty much invisible at that point. Well, as I say many times in my, in my concerts, the Buffalo Springfield were really good cats, but they were like herding cats. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, I was not aware of any issues going on in the band. You know, first of all, I was young. Secondly, right. I had not experienced what paranoia was oh, or, right. or or drama, for that matter. So um, they were all really wonderful to work with. They were professional. They they just didn't seem to want to get together at the same time. But um, I would say uh, it was a very difficult album to finish. But uh, I made a commitment to Amadurian that I would get it done. And I had made a commitment to the band that I would do it. So I just pursued and kept getting the music done, getting things recorded, getting them mixed and edited to where I could finally... You know, unfortunately, I had great tools there at Sunset Sound to work with great compressors, limiters, a good chamber. I could put that stuff together and mix it to where it all had some consistency to where it, it felt like at least they had been together when they did it, even though they were in different places and different times when the recordings were made. As you and Richie start to discuss forming Poco, um, were you still kind of developing your songwriting skills at that point? You're strong in the studio, but did you know songwriting so much? I mean, I've done a lot of arrangements for other people, you know, uh, that was part of my my uh, ability was to take somebody else's songs and arrange them and rec- you know, record them. Yep. But I haven't spent a, t- a, a whole lot of time writing, although I, I had written a number of tunes with other people before I even met the Buffalo Springfield, but I never had the confidence to really say, hey, how about my song, right? But I had written this song called Carefree Country Day, and we were in New York, and uh, Dewey Martin was supposed to have sung that song. But as most people know, Dewey Martin was you know, a very spiritual individual. In fact, he en- enjoyed the spirits quite often <laughs> and um, ca- came to the session extremely spirited uh-huh. uh, to the point where he couldn't even sit on the stool. So Richie elbowed me. He said, well, you sing it. And I said, I'm not a singer. So it doesn't matter. Just sing it. It's your song. Go ahead and do it. So I did it. And um, I, I finally got the feeling of, of I, I guess I can do this if I really, you know, put my effort out. But one of the funny things, the side notes of this, is that uh, I believe it was Ahmed Erdogan who heard the song Carefree Country Day and had mentioned, this sounds like it'd be a single. And, and I guess that just blew the roof off of the other guys. They said, Absolutely not. That's not what <laughs> he's the president of the record company thought it was a good tune yeah yeah he's got a little influence doesn't he you wanted to get back to producing uh after poco i know this and this young guy named Keddie loggins comes in a virtual unknown and i i believe that you kind of wanted to guide him because he was so new and that of course ended up turning into this great partnership well i I think the the short and long of it is is that once I decided that I, I think you know this could be a, a an artist that could make it mainly because 
his voice was such and his interests were such that he liked to do a diverse, had the ability to sing a diverse type of, of songs because as a songwriter, uh, he would be asked to write a Nelton John song and he could sing like that or he could write, uh, you know, a, a Leon Russell song and he could sing like that. He, he could shape his voice and and he he enjoyed being able to do that. And, and what I realized coming out of Poco was that being pigeonholed and especially in having started a new music called Country Rock, we were too rock for country and too country for rock for stations to want to play it. Yeah. And what I did not want to see is myself getting involved with another artist like that, which is why I turned down one particular artist because he wanted to make a, a, a Poco album. And um, I just said I couldn't do that. And then when I ran across Kenny, who had this diversification, I felt if I spent the time, worked with him, got him the material that was diverse enough at the time, he was just writing really folk songs like Danny's Song and House of the Corner. He needed more. And as I discovered he was interested in wanting to do more and could do more, it gave me the inspiration to put on the effort and energy to see if we couldn't make him a success. But there's the music and then there's the reality of in order to get it to become a success, you have to be a performing artist. You have to have a band. You have to have an agent. You have to have a manager. And those were the things that I had had experience in and people that I could help guide him in. And, uh, you know, I just realized that this was going to be a success. I, I proposed to him that, why, why don't we do this as Kenny Loggins' album with Jim Messina sitting in like the old jazz days. And I could be there to help him get him started, move things along. And then after that first tour, I could bow out and he'd be on his own and I could start producing just Kenny Loggins' records. But lo and behold, it turned out to be a hell of a lot more successful than I ever thought it would be. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that first album was like on the, on the charts for 400 weeks. Yeah, I was so. going to ask, whatever became of that kid? <laughs> well, he became a, a, a hell of a pop singer. Yes, he did. Jim Messina and Kenny Loggins will be uh, doing a couple of dates at the Hollywood Bowl. In fact, it's July 15th and 16th. Any thought about doing maybe a few more dates after that? Because we have we like to do little mini residencies here in Las Vegas. Well, I'd love to do a mini residence there in Las Vegas with Jim Messina, but I will tell you this. If if if, if this show goes well, um, I, I think the key is, when I say goes well, if it's something we can do and enjoy without having to put it on the road, uh, it's just too difficult in this day and age. Yeah. The cost of fuels and buses and you know carrying around the production the beautiful thing that i, I thought uh and our agency thought was that hollywood bowl has their own sound system they have their own crew i mean they're ready to do shows same as jones beach would be or ravinia or a red rock if we can just go in like i do when i'm going to the city winery and playing a show show up perform have fun and leave without having to have all the hoo-ha i know i personally would enjoy doing that and if and if the show i think works out for us he may be uh, interested in doing the same thing great hope that works out you can go to jimmessina.com for all upcoming tour dates great. and to find that great in the groove album jim just an honor talking to you thanks so much for your time thank you for your time i really appreciate it and you know crowds are going to love the reunited Loggins and Messina, and it sounds like they might just want to add a few more dates this summer. 
if they can just plug into places and stay there for a few nights. Well, that does it for this musical episode of the Fake Show podcast with the great Jim Messina. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. I'm Jim Tofty. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. Yeah,